good evening, everyone. Um, Waminjika, and welcome to M Pavilion. We acknowledge the Bunwarang as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and we pay our respects to the land, their ancestors and their elders, past, present and to the future. Tonight we continue our Tuesday evening series of M Talks, which are conversations at the intersection of architecture and design. And tonight we have uh, two luminaries in conversation. We have Josephine Ridge, who is the creative director of the Melbourne Festival. And many of you will be aware of her, um, her very inspired cross-disciplinary cross programming for this year's festival. And some of you might have been fortunate enough to hear the um, mesmerising playing of harpist, harpist um, in the pavilion, Marshall Maguire, at lunchtime today. And this is part of Josephine's programming. We also have um, hot pink programs from the Melbourne Festival that will be uh, circulated this evening. Um, Josephine will be in conversation with the inaugural M Pavilion architect, Sean Godsell. Many of you will know his astonishing uh, RMIT design hub and um, we are also delighted that M Pavilion, um, Sean's rendition of M Pavilion has been shortlisted for the uh, Melbourne Design Awards. Sean um, has been written up in Wallpaper magazine as one of the 10 most influential people to change the way we live and tonight we might hear some ideas about habitation and dwelling. The format for tonight is a 40-minute dialogue between Josephine and Sean, followed by opportunities um, from the audience to ask questions. So please join me in welcoming Sean and Josephine. Thank you, Natalie. Just uh, realigning myself. Looking for Bart. Bart, have I done that correctly? There we go. Uh, good evening, everybody, and, uh, and welcome to, uh, to M Pavilion. Um, as I'm sure needs no uh, introduction to any of you, um, M Pavilion is the, uh, the inspired initiative of Naomi Milgram and the uh, Naomi Milgram Foundation. Um, and uh, it is inspired. It's an extraordinary and visionary gift uh, to the people of Melbourne and uh, from uh, Naomi, who is herself an extraordinary philanthropist. So um, I think you are also aware that uh, it's taken, the M Pavilion takes its inspiration from uh, the Serpentine Pavilions, which uh, over the last 15 or so years, every summer have uh, graced the uh, the forecourt area, the fore garden area of the uh, of the Serpentine in London. Uh, the first was uh, designed by Saha Hadid, and uh, subsequent uh, designs by Rem Coolhouse, uh, Frank Gehry, and uh, of course the current pavilion by Smil Radic. Um, however, there is a a significant point of difference between uh, the the Serpentine pavilions and uh, the M Pavilion in which we now sit. Um, and that is that the M Pavilion is not only an architectural statement, uh, but it is also a venue for a range of performances. Natalie just mentioned Marshall Maguire this morning uh, with his beautiful harp. 
um, harps, I should say. He also had his Baroque harp. Um, but, uh, you know, Melbourne Festival, for example, has uh, over the next 17 days programmed uh, the pavilion with a range of other musical activities as well as talks uh, and even some dance. Um, and then for the, uh, for the further two months beyond uh, the Melbourne Festival, there is an extraordinary range of, uh, of performances which will take place here uh, until, uh, until the pavilion is in fact moved. Um, and uh, that is one of the other wonderful aspects of M Pavilion in that it will be relocated by the City of Melbourne, one of the supporters of M Pavilion, uh, to a site uh, a still secret uh, somewhere in, uh, in Melbourne um, as a, a long-term, a lasting um, legacy of this, this project. Uh, this is, of course, the, the first of four pavilions, um, and there are a range of amazing partners um, across the cultural section, se cultural sector, um, as well as the City of Melbourne, as I said, and this state government. Um, so, uh, on to uh, Sean Godsell, the uh, designer of this first pavilion in which we are now all sitting. Um, I'm just going to, I'm sure Sean needs very little introduction, but by way of introduction, I am actually just going to uh, run through quickly uh, biography, a short bio of, uh, of Sean, to say he was born in Melbourne in 1960. Uh, he graduated with first-class honours from the University of Melbourne in 1984, obtained a Master's of Architecture degree from RMIT University in uh, 1999. Um, he spent much of 1985 travelling around uh, Japan and Europe, and uh, he, uh, he worked in London, returning to Melbourne in 1989 and worked for the Hassel Group and uh, started his own firm, uh, as I'm sure you all know, the Godsell Associates, Associates in 1994. Um, he's a tutor at uh, the University of Melbourne um, and uh, he has lectured around the world um, in, uh, in America, in the UK, in China, Japan, uh, France, just about everywhere actually. <laughs> I was a keynote speaker um, at the Alva Alto Symposium in Finland. Um, he has uh, received a citation from the president of the American Institute of Architects for his work for the homeless. Um, in uh, 2012, um, the, uh, his most recent and a very significant building, the um, RMIT Design Hub, was uh, completed. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's one of the most significant new buildings to grace Melbourne's skyline. Um, it's uh, won three major architecture awards, uh, both uh, in Victoria nationally and internationally, um, which of course adds to a very long list of awards that Sean Godsell has garnered over his, his career. Um, so, Sean, before we uh, talk specifically about the M Pavilion, um, I just thought that we might uh, go into a bit of background and I would ask you a few questions uh, for perhaps some added context. Um, you can ask you me anything you like. <laughs> <laughs> I just might not answer. That's all. I have been warned. <laughs> um, you were recently asked to uh, select... In fact, after such a nice introduction, I'm really interested to hear what I'm about to say. <laughs> uh, you were uh, recently asked to select five of your favourite houses in Melbourne um, for an open day and actually another discussion in relation to M Pavilion with Professor Philip Goad from uh, University of Melbourne. Uh, you selected houses by Roy Grounds, Peter McIntyre, Robin Boyd and um, Edmund and Corrigan. 
Um, the fifth was your family home in, uh, in Beaumaris, designed by your father, David Godsell, which was uh, completed in the year you were born. Um, spending your childhood in, uh, in that house, visiting, as you said, building sites with your father, um, there seems to have been an inevitability about your becoming an architect. Um, and so I just wonder how strong an impact did uh, being your father's son have on the choices that you've made? Uh, yeah, it had a fairly profound in impact in a lot of ways. Uh, before I answer that, can I just thank everyone for coming on such a freezing night? <laughs> <clears throat> I'm, I'm sorry, we, we were asked to put heating in, in this project and we said no. <laughs> Uh, now, in, in retrospect, that was a, a dumb decision. <laughs> in fact, about a decade ago, uh, the little mass-produced house that we designed out of sh shipping containers, Future Shack, was on exhibit in the Cooper Hewitt Museum in New York. And I'll answer your question in a minute. <laughs> You're right. There are some spare rugs down here, by the way. <laughs> and uh, it was a big deal, and it was, a, it was 10 years ago. And uh, we shipped it over from Melbourne to New York via Oakland in Los Angeles and um, put it up in the garden of the Cooper Hewitt. And those of you who know New York and know the Cooper Hewitt Museum will know that that was the former mansion of Carnegie, the Carnegie family, the steel barons. And the garden's an exhibition space and the museum's fantastic. It's actually the Smithsonian's design museum in New York. Anyway... The opening night was a big deal and a big party and everyone came and it was all fantastic. And then the next night I was scheduled to give a talk in, in the garden. And the next day was New York's wettest day on record and it just rained all day and the whole thing was a washout and seven people came. And we, <laughs> we couldn't do the talk in the garden, it was too wet, so we had to retire to the beautiful drawing um, gallery, drawing archive, um, and it was one of the nicest talks I've ever given. So I, th I think there are two points there. One is that you, we're much hardier than New Yorkers, obviously. <laughs> and I don't know what the second point is. I got to ask you answer your question. So yeah, growing up in architecture, that's all I really knew, and with the exception of a period of time at school with where my good friend who's sitting in the front row there and I watched too many episodes of MASH and decided that we both wanted to be doctors. <laughs> um, I stuck with architecture and he became a doctor. <laughs> so, yes, it had an influence. Da Dad was a very good architect. He did that house when he was a very young man and it's still mm. a spectacularly good house. He did it, designed it when he was 26, built a lot of it himself. I got exposed to the art of building by by simply w watching him when I was a kid and I used to follow him around he used to call me his shadow I used to follow him everywhere and followed followed him to the building sites and sat on his knee while he drew in his in his office which was attached to the house and uh, so I was you know probably either, either going to be an architect or nothing architect it was uh, so uh, other influences. Uh, obviously, your father was a very strong mentor, um, but you've uh, you've frequently cited other strong influences in your design practice. Who have I cited? <laughs> <laughs> to give me uh, a clue. Glenn Merkin. 
Uh, Glenn, Glenn, I respect and admire a huge amount, but I don't think that he's influenced my work at all. Um, he's obviously at, been at the vanguard of Australian architecture for decades, and he's, um, you know, his practice is, is renowned around the world. Um, so I admire his, I, I admire his practice, and his his work ethic greatly, but his work isn't necessarily work that I, I looked at as a young architect and was influenced by. So um, he's a friend and um, a colleague and uh, his work's spectacularly good. But I was interested in different stuff at the, at the time that Glenn was, was getting towards the top of the mountain. I was looking probably elsewhere. Um, so I spent a lot of time in Japan and looked closely at a lot of Japanese work, but at the same time was obviously interested in, in Europe. And, and also I actually worked at, at Peter Corrigan's office, Peter and Maggie, mm. as a student, so locally, con- uh, conversely, I guess, was influenced by, by, by that office to a small degree. So uh, you mentioned Japan, and I just wonder the uh, the importance that you might feel about uh, a global uh, voice, an international voice within the architectural aesthetic in Australia. Well, architecture is a universal language. So, you know, Australia has a particular way of producing buildings, and I would hope, and, and I would say Glenn would, would echo these thoughts, I hope it's architecture that responds to climate and and to our condition but we don't work in isolation certainly not in the 21st century so it's legitimate to to look around the world in my case and and one of the cornerstones of the proposition in my architecture it's about the region and a belief that um Australia is part of a region, the region Southeast Asia. It's bookended at one end by Japan and at the other end by us. And if you ascribe to any any theory of regionalism, then then that becomes a legitimate encyclopedia of architectural knowledge. So you can look look comfortably from Australia into Asia and be influenced sensibly by it. Um, whether Australian architecture is in, is conversely in influencing Asia, I'm not sure. But certainly in the case of Japan and before Japan, China, because most of J- Japanese architecture comes from China, there's a, there's a there's a lifetime's work just just in investigating the traditional Japanese house, for example. Mm-hmm. So is it uh, is it true? And I guess it, it probably is from what you've just said that your uh, your design reflects uh, an integration, I suppose, of international influences as well as Australian. I mean, we're standing or sitting, sitting and standing, in a building that you have said is very inspired by the Australian shed. Um, but uh, you have quite rightly also been talking about Japan as, a, as an influence in that aesthetic. Well, it, it, any serious Australian architect um, looks beyond our shores at some point. Mm. There's no... No, no question of that. I mean, to not look beyond our shores and to investigate architecture properly, I mean, you need to know your history to be a good architect. You have to actually understand the architecture of, of the entire world and use that to draw on when you design a building. So to, to comprehend the, the, the Western civilization of Australia, for example, you have to understand that 
our early housing stock. Um, once we once we established ourselves here, was fundamentally Georgian, and it was it was a British architecture that was being transported. We modified it by by adding a veranda around it, just like they modified it in America and modified it in Africa and modified it in India. But that it's it's fundamentally where we came from um, locally. And so, if you don't get that, you don't really get the starting point for Australian architecture. The interesting thing about Australian architecture is the um, the reality of distance in those days, and if you read the Fatal Shore, you know Robert Hughes explains that beautifully. But so does Niall Ferguson in his book Empire, that Australia was a long way from anywhere, and you know in in 180 odd years, have a look around you and look at what we've achieved. It's quite a remarkable thing, and so the history of our architecture is very brief, and the thing that makes our architecture interesting is. Um, what I what I talk about in the office sometimes is the is the notion of the bush mechanic, that is the ability to make architecture out of very little remotely, and the history of Australia is that half the time the ships with building materials sunk before they got here, and so our forefathers in in my profession had to make do with what they could get their hands on, and and in that there's an inventiveness, and the inventiveness is. Um, fundamental to the notion that a shed, a shearing shed, a hay shed can can actually be transformed into a little bit more with some imagination and with the capacity to work with what you've got at your fingertips. So we're a little bit unique in that sense. So in in terms of of history, and we look around uh, Melbourne and we can see uh, the the legacy of... uh, all of that early building, and uh, and particularly the legacy of the Gold Rush, which is which is really obvious in most of that, the major buildings in the CBD. Um, and uh, I'm I'm just wondering, the uh, I, I think I guess one of the things that I love about Melbourne is that uh, we feel our history, we see our history, and uh, and we are also a very contemporary city. Um, and I just wonder, you know, how you see. Uh, this contemporary Melbourne skyline, the contemporary city developing uh, in relationship to that history. Um, what's valuable? Are there lessons? Um, do we push through it? Uh, Melbourne's a beautiful city. You know, we, we, we're a spectacularly good city. On, on, I defy anyone to name a, another city in the world that's got such spectac- spectacular gardens and parks around it as we do. The gridiron's quite beautiful, you know. Um, we we should, I think, be reinforcing the gridiron and not getting sucked into develop developing docklands, developing South Bank, developing Fisherman's Bend, and and forsaking the the centre of the CBD in doing so. So, um, you know, there are arguments that architects can't necessarily solve. Their arguments for p- politicians and business people to solve but I think we're missing out on a on a big opportunity at the moment by getting getting distracted by the periphery and not focusing on the centre. The centres we, we've got an, the capacity to have the same presence as, as Manhattan or you know Chicago any any of the other sort of significant gridiron cities in the world I don't think we're necessarily getting that right at the moment but one of the one of the things you can rely on about this city is that it, it, inevitably we do get it right. 
we might bumble what our way through. What does it take through. to get it right? It just takes will, good good leadership. You know, Paris, the, the Paris that we as tourists know wouldn't be Paris without Napoleon III and, and Haussmann and their vision and their and their strength to to see their vision through. So urban design takes that. We've become really impatient as a society. We expect things to happen instantly and good good urban design takes generations. Uh, and it's only recently that we've we've been sort of fooled into believing just just because you can pick up your phone and ring anywhere in the world you can you can also snap your fingers and produce good good urban design and I think uh, we might have to make a few mistakes to figure that one out unfortunately. So um, picking up on that, that concept of uh, good urban design and, and good design, I'm going to just uh, refer to an interview that you did with uh, Leon van Trak in the uh, El Croque uh, edition, the edition of that very prestigious magazine. El Crocus, it's Spanish, it means the sketch. Crocus, excuse my pronunciation. The sketch. Um, you made, in that interview, you made a connection between your childhood fascination um, with designing, building cubby houses, um, huts and uh, even a tree house, um, as well of, as I've mentioned earlier, watching your, your father work. Um, but you uh, equated that with a connection with the primordial search for human shelter um, and uh, the world being a hostile place from which we need protection. Um, and uh, you referred then to say that, you, you went on to say that from that um, came a feeling in you that architecture should help everyone. I'm just wondering what you meant by that. Mm, That sounds like architecture's meant to be altruistic, which I don't necessarily think is what I was getting at. I think that was probably me spruiking um, some of the homelessness projects that we've tried valiantly and failed Mm. with. (laughs) Uh, if you Im- imagine a night like this in Melbourne and, and we can all go home and, and ultimately pull the doona up over our heads, a homeless person on a night like this has to find shelter. And so what I was trying to do there was expand the potential of, of architecture to reach out to more than the privileged percentage of the population that can commission architecture. So... Architecture can talk to a lot of people if you think about it, and I usually use examples like the, um, you know, in the tube in London, the moulded plastic seats and armrests are designed that way deliberately so that uh, homeless people can't sleep on them. So that's 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 commissioned design, conscious of an agenda, and the agenda is to make it difficult for someone who hasn't got anywhere to go to use that constructed infrastructure as a as a home. So though if you start thinking about that those sorts of things raise questions they raise questions of what what constitutes a home and what constitutes a house and what what is fundamentally important about architecture and is architecture fundamentally about providing shelter from the elements and I'd say it probably is. We forget that in the digital age because we think it's fundamentally about making stupid shaped coloured and brightly coloured buildings, but really it's about providing shelter. And so we need to remind ourselves of that. And when we design our cities, we need to remind ourselves that there is a, a percentage of the population that's displaced and that they'll seek constructed infrastructure regardless of how difficult you make it for them to 
sleep there because the alternative's not not pleasant. So I think that's where that comment was probably coming mm. from. So hence the, the park bench house. Yeah, I stuck the park bench house in, in the new house category in the Institute of Architects Awards in, when was it, Hales? 2000 and something? Two, I think. Two. Yeah. Which was reasonably controversial, but the purpose of, of doing that was to highlight that question, you know, what, what constitutes a house for, for all of us isn't a house if you don't have a house at all. So it was to provoke, and 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 it probably did provoke. Didn't get an award though, <laughs> but I did, probably didn't need one. I, I just, the message got out there. You got a lot of awards anyway. Um, so, in what capacity do you really think that that uh, good architecture can have to influence the way that that people live and and occupy a city and actually behave towards one another? Exactly the same capacity that bad architecture has to <laughs> change the way we live and how we occupy space. Uh, everyone, everyone benefits from good design. You, you know, we we encounter it every day, whether you're conscious of it or not. So, architecture is part of that world. You know, w- well-designed space can can touch your heart and lift your spirits and make you feel good. And that's what all architects are hoping when they set about to design a building and conversely bad badly designed space miserable space um can make you feel that way and 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 that's the opposite effect so architecture can do that you can overrate architecture too we can't solve the problems of the world all we do really as architects is respond to the needs of society and so uh, as long as we're good observers of society and as long as we can see what the hell society needs will will probably remain relevant if we remove ourselves from those fundamental observations then we have a bigger problem because we can construct the built environment we construct the environment that people live in and the environment that we construct has to remain relevant to the way people live and so it's a fundamental furphy that, to believe that architects actually prescribe the way buildings are designed we, we respond to the needs that society prescribes to us. And that's a point that would be well remembered in recent times when I observe some of the things that are being built. And no, I'm not going to name them. <laughs> um, and uh, you, you also, in, in addition to what you've just said, you, you um, hold sustainability and lessening environmental impact um, as, as a central plank. Uh, to your thinking, to your approach, um, use of recycled materials, um, outer skins to, to aid cooling, um, uh, capacity. Aiding cooling tonight. That's it for sure. certainly is. Um, the uh, sixteen thousand sand blasted uh, glass discs on the RMIT design hub um, provide automated sun shading, and uh, I think particularly inspired that you've you've actually built into the design the capacity to take advantage of future technology technological advances um, and uh, so that one day perhaps the uh, discs can in fact power the entire building. Um, so uh, I, I think this is probably self-evident but uh, is it also an architect's responsibility to think about sustainability and the environment um, as well as the design aesthetic and does that involve any compromises? Uh, there's a PhD in the answer to that question. <laughs> 
Of course it is. And I think good architects always have done that. I think it's become very fashionable to, to make it a point. But I think good architects have always been good environmental engineers, good environmental designers. Um, a lot of those design decisions become self-evident. Um, so some of them, subsequent to their obviousness, become legislated. You know, why we don't have legislated water tanks for every single residence built in this country, I don't know. We're the driest place on the planet. Why aren't we making that a mandatory thing? Um, why do I still see buildings, uh, houses being built without eaves overhangs in such a hot country? I can't, I, I can't influence policy, but they're, they're obvious things. Ultimately, that'll happen. You know, if, despite the low return and high cost of a photovoltaic, why isn't it mandatory that every house in this country has photovoltaics on it? It's easy to do. You can do, you can do anything with a s snap of fingers. And if you make it the law and you, I can't get a building permit without it, then the next day I'm doing it. So those things are... That's one side of the coin. The other side of the environmental coin, I guess, is that you need clients with courage and vision. We did a house up in the Yarra Valley years ago, a very tough client. Um, she was a partner at a litigating firm of lawyers and she was a scary client, but she had a, a lot of courage and we did a house there um, known as the Glenburn House that, that rates off the scale in terms of its environmental performance. That's seven years ago. Um, Margaret Gardner at RMIT, uh, again, a, a client with huge courage and huge vision, wanted a solar-powered building, and I said, well, that technology doesn't really exist yet. RMIT does solar research with Siemens, the German company. Let's, let's be much braver about the future of solar and more optimistic and make a building skin that can shade and reduce... Um, solar radiation on, on glass now but can later be transformed and the theory of that building um, is that during this century solar energy research will get to a point where it, we could replace the shade skin with a solar skin and it could power the building and wouldn't that be a good thing and in the case of this pavilion and um, another courageous client with Vision, Naomi Milgram, we, we said really early days, let's let's put a, a... If we're talking about analogies and we're talking about things like shearing sheds, let's put a recycled um, timber floor in the thing and get it out of an old building that's come out of the countryside somewhere so we don't have to chop down any trees mm. to make the floor. So that's what we did, and it's not not that hard to do, and the floor in this um, in this building looks, I think, really beautiful. It does. And it, it actually looks incredibly appropriate for the, for being in a park somehow. Uh, it has an outdoors feel. Um, Lucky that so, worked. <laughs> um, so, a, as you said, I mean, there's certainly no need for cooling in, uh, in this building. Um, You've got to imagine a balmy summer's night in a month or two. It'll be, it, it'll be spectacular. It's been pretty balmy the last few days. Yeah. It's, uh, it will be again, never fear. Um, this uh, this pavilion feels like a, a really elegant and um, and pure solution uh, to putting a, a building in a park. 
and uh, and makes a strong design statement uh, in and of itself, uh, in addition to the practical uses and considerations. Um, I, in, uh, in, in doing some research and thinking about what we might talk about tonight, um, I read a comment that you made about uh, the Q-Shack, um, which is uh, the addition to your Q-House. Q-Studio. Yes. Yep. Um, the Q-Studio, sorry. Um, and you commented then that you completed the design of that project around the same time as you completed the RMIT Design Hub. Um, and that it served as a poignant reminder of the power of architecture, that the power of architecture is independent of scale. Mm. Um, and I thought that was a really relevant comment to this building. Mm. Yeah, scale scales are always an important thing in architecture. Size isn't important. The... <laughs> The architectural intent and the delivery of the architecture is important, and and you can do that in in a room, one room, if you if you're good at what you do. And um, so, in a project like this one, the, the the scale is everything because it's in isolation in a in a garden, and so we spend a lot of time trying to get that right. Um, I still, uh, it's very unfashionable, and people people. Um, sort of roll their eyes at architects like me nowadays, young architects uh, sort of roll their eyes because I don't sit in front of a computer all day typing but um, I still think that architecture needs proportion to be elegant and so a lot of, a lot of time was spent on the proportion of this hyper-style hall architects in the room know what I mean by that term and um, this elegant tempietto they know what i mean by that and this shearing shed and we all know what i mean by that so there's a lot of layers in this building that probably cover i just covered 2000 years of architecture so you can fill in the gaps but it, it's not coincidental nothing that comes out of the office is coincidental it's all fairly rigorously considered it's also um, utterly responsive to the site uh, and being in a, in a park. And uh, I just wonder if you could talk a little about this idea of it closing down at night and opening up in the day. And um, I think, you know, we, we, I think are we fully open at the moment almost? Um, there, there are some beautiful states halfway between as well. Yeah, we had to secure the thing at night. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, there have been some dumb, dumb comments on... on uh, apparently, you know, us copying the serpentine. Well, uh, uh, <laughs> the serpentine exists within a gallery, and the gallery is secured from the general public at night. We're we're existing in a park in isolation. We have to be able to lock ourselves down at night and make the things secure. So, the fact that that was um, helped by an operable facade was a bonus. Okay. Mm. Um, and uh, and the idea of, of the it, it's been likened to a butterfly, a flower. Um, perhaps you'd just like to share with us a little more, I guess, about the thought in the detail of the building, the concept. Well, Apart from the shed, yeah, I guess uh, I am thinking yeah, about yeah. the sales. That the yeah. yeah. the next question is: Is it actually a building? Is is this a building or not? It's nearly a building. 
it's having to do a lot of stuff that a building does, but it doesn't keep the weather out. So, it's, so does that mean it ceases to be a building and starts to be something else? So, um, I've been interested in the notion of the veranda in my architecture for well over a decade and the idea that the veranda transformed into an abstract second skin on a building can um, perform the same functions that a veranda does and that's to shade and shelter. Mm. If you can operate the shade and the shelter then you can manipulate the building and the ingress of light and air and so that's where all that comes from and in this um, reasonably poetic interpretation of that you can keep keep running that idea through the entire skin of the building and if you um, advocate the arbitrary nature of the of the building user interfacing with that then it can be in a gazillion configurations and the capriciousness of that makes it beautiful because on any day as you walk past this particular building it might look different and that's quite nice and that's all it needs to do too you don't need to um, redefine architecture in a pavilion in a garden you actually need to also have a little bit of fun with it and Mm. so the analogy of a flower um, blossoming each day seems to make sense if you put all of that together but most of all um, and it's what architecture should do as I mentioned before it should give you pleasure so one of the things that I've observed and and that um, Hayley Franklin from my office has observed when we've been down here sort of getting things right is is the sheer pleasure on the face of people as they observe it opening up Mm. and the smile that that breaks over people's faces and that's a really nice thing for an architect to see any time of the day or night that the, the sheer ingenuity, what, what humans can do with something as apparently simple as a, as a dumb box in a park <laughs> that gives it um, that much pleasure is a nice thing. So that's a good thing to have. Um, you've uh, credited Naomi as being a good client um, and, uh, that, uh, and, and the importance, I guess, of the client in, uh, in the outcome, in, in the process of designing... Um, and I just wondered if you'd like to, to share any thoughts you have about the role of the patron um, in achieving outcomes. Well, I mean, patrons, patron is another word for client, really. Mm. The, the architects can't do architecture without clients. Mm. I, I, don't, I don't have the wherewithal to walk around dropping my buildings arbitrarily around the city. I need someone to ring my office and say, I'd like you to do one of your buildings for me. So... Um, you know, I guess using the word patron is also about um, the the role of a, I suppose how a client with vision um, can provide opportunity can help. Well, they provide everything. Great mm. clients make great architects. Mm. No client makes no architecture. Mm. Simple. I mean, I'm looking at a client from how how long ago, Peter? Twenty twenty five. Yeah. Um. Client, client, and architects have to work together, and and the the client lets the architect sing. You know, you 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 hold on to each other, and you run to the edge of the cliff, and you jump, and you fly. If you can't do that, if you haven't got the guts for that, don't bother with architecture. You just, there are plenty of ways to get buildings. You don't need architects for that. 
So in the case of someone like Naomi, she didn't flinch once, as far as I know. And um, <laughs> and what 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 that what that means um, is that, and I got I've had a lot of clients like that. Um, it, it'd be fair to isolate unfair to isolate Naomi in that sense. What it means is you can do your best work for your client because mm. what architects are very good at when we get clients like that is is we repay, re, we repay that loyalty with loyalty times 10. So we go the extra mile and we do the extra things and we and we burn the midnight oil to try and get the building right for our client because we appreciate the um, the act of faith involved in the commission. And that's the history of patronage. And I said uh, at the uh, opening, you know, if we didn't have, um, if we didn't have Naomi, we wouldn't have the next four years of pavilions. We, we wouldn't have a beautiful building in Richmond. Um, if we didn't have the Medici's, we wouldn't have Brunelleschi or Michelangelo buildings. If we didn't ha have Edgar Kaufman, we wouldn't have Falling Water or Richard Neutra's um, Desert House. If we didn't have uh, Francois Pinot, we wouldn't have the, the two Ando buildings in Venice. And you can go on and on and on and on and on. And that's that's actually what architecture is. I'm really lucky. People ring my office occasionally and ask me to do a building. And sometimes they don't ring the office. And then we just tighten our belts and sit tight and, and try and write it out. It's just that's just the way it is. Uh, we, we're very used, I think, now to, to the notion of a competition um, and... Uh, this uh, this is a commission, um, mm. as will the next three be, um, and I just wonder if you if you feel that there is a role for competitions. Um, I'm thinking at the moment there was uh, you know in, within the last twelve months the uh, the Flinders Street Station mm -hmm. competition, and we are very used to um, competitions as a mechanism for somehow drawing out ideas for grand statements on the city. Yeah, I don't enter a lot of competitions. I didn't enter Flinders Street. Um, if I do competitions, I hope that they're by invitation so that the the completely arbitrary nature of a, an architectural competition is slightly reduced. Um, we've never won a competition. Uh, I think we've done some fantastic buildings that haven't been premiated in competitions, but that's just the way it is. I mean, I could... Architecture is just exactly the same as golf. You hit your ball, you hit a good shot. Your opponent hits a good shot, you say, well played. You can't do anything else. So we try to be good golfers in my office. And if we win, we win. If we don't win, we don't win. And if someone else does a better shot, you just say, well played. You try to anyway. <laughs> so, I don't know, competitions have resulted in some great buildings around the world and some dreadful ones. I think being commissioned is more sensible because you get to work with your client and that's how you get the best architecture. But, um, you know, if we hadn't, have, had, hadn't have had a competition, we wouldn't have had a, a building in Sydney by a Danish guy. The Opera House. Yeah. The Opera House, indeed, the Opera House. Uh, perhaps we might get one of those in Fisherman's Bend. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, look, I think we might open it up to uh, for questions at this point. Um, I quite like the golf analogy. If anyone wants to talk about golf, <laughs> you had made a boxing analogy in competitions. Oh, that's from Corbusier. Exactly. Corbusier used to draw himself in sketches as a boxer, and it, it, it's 
just always been thus in architecture. It's a, it's a tough sort of game to get involved mm. in. Plenty of people can't hack it and they bail out. Only the really tough people in, a, in my profession keep practising. And, you, you know, he, him depicting himself as a boxer was saying, really, it's, it's not how many times you get knocked down, it's how many times you get up that counts in, in this profession, probably more so than most, because it's pretty, pretty brutal. Okay, so uh, have we got uh, any questions um, that anyone would like to ask? That boxing analogy no, terrified that was, everyone. Yes, exactly. <laughs> They're all afraid they might get hit if they ask a curly one. Would you like perhaps to come towards yeah, the microphone? I can't, I can't hear you. Oh, there's one here. Oh, there we are. That'll do. I apologise first because there's nothing intellectual in this question, but the the leaves that open and close, uh, who decides when they open, how open, and how many mm. times a day are they altered? That's a good question. It's very intellectual too. <laughs> um, in this building, uh, it's completely at the discretion of the people operating the building for the day-to-day -day use. So um, we snuck down here earlier and opened up everything, but I, th I suspect it would, would be preferable if we had a couple of the sides down at the moment. So it's you can operate it with a remote control or operate it from the switchboard if you, and do what you want to with it. So if it's blowing a southerly buster and you want to close down the south side, you can do it. At the design hub, it's it's a bit more sophisticated. The whole of that facade runs through. Uh, there are all the acronyms, the, the BAS, the Building Automation System. It's a central computer that just tells the, tells the thing to open and close depending on the time of the day and the time of the year. And you can override that. Here we have a, um, and, and at the Design Hub as well, we have um, wind speed detectors that will tell the roof, particularly in this case, um, to close down if the, if the wind speed gets up. Um, just as a sort of belts and braces safety thing and the same at the Design Hub. I don't know whether anyone else thinks this, but I reckon Melbourne's getting windier uh, and um, we seem to have really damaging winds quite regularly now, so... It certainly has been of late. I, I think I've been one of those people standing here smiling as uh, as the building opens itself up. And there's a point about three quarters of the way through mm. that I just go, oh, beautiful. Is it three quarters of the way through for you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have we got any other questions? Oh, okay. Um, you talked about developing or focusing on Melbourne's grid instead of the periphery. Um, in an ideal world where you could have free range to indulge your creativity, what would you focus on to develop that area that would capture the uniqueness and, of Melbourne so we could sit up on that international stage with the likes of Manhattan? Well, I think they're, they're fairly obvious in Melbourne. I think the, uh, you know, at the risk of offending a, a, a large number of people, the, the idea that Swanson Street is a walk is a nonsense. 
I think Swanson Street should just be open back to traffic straight away, and and you just forget forget all that dream of it of closing it off. It just doesn't work. It's our it's our Champs Elysees, and it should be open to people traffic and and actual traffic. And I think uh, the height controls over the centre of the CBD should be abandoned. And I I think that if you if you look at look at a skyscraper city like the one we've now got, and this is the 21st century, why have we got streets in Melbourne that are still single-storey, boom-style shops? I mean, it looks like the main street of Seymour in, in some instances. And if you look, at, look down the north end of Exhibition and Russell Street and around Lonsdale Street, you'll see what I mean. So I can't quite reconcile developing Fisherman's Bend when we've got site after site, street after street, that's single or two-storey buildings. The plot ratios don't make sense. The value of the real estate suggests that we shouldn't have them there. And um, they contribute to parts of the city still being quite dead. And I think, you know, sensibly, those couple of shifts in thinking would dramatically (coughs) enhance the centre of the city and we wouldn't be reliant on, on quick, fixed commercial developments on the periphery, which is what's tended to happen. And unfortunately, the upshot of that is that certain vistas back towards our beautiful city and our beautiful skyline are now sort of spoilt a little bit, which is a pity. Thank you. Any more questions? Uh, well, hmm. uh, Peter. Peter's a great architect. I mean, he's a great thinker, and he. I, I argue that in, in certainly in the Melbourne context, Peter's right up there with Robin Boyd in terms of his of his influence. He influenced a whole generation of architects. I wasn't one of them. I was the next generation down almost. But uh, he's a he's a great thinker still. Um, he, he's a larrikin, he, he's a provocateur and I really like that about his work and I worked in the office when I was in third year and Peter was, um, most of the time that I was there was actually over in Yale as visiting professor there um, but we still get on pretty well I was really happy that he agreed to let me pay a tribute to him in the design hub by reproducing his 1981 decoration of a W-class tram in the basement there. The Mother Knows tram, some of you will remember, was very, very controversial, very, very provocative and typical of of the sort of stuff that Peter was interested in. So there's a point of departure where he and I would both concede that we're... um, where, as he said to me once, we're walking on different sides of the street with our architecture. Well, that's fine too. And one of the things I, I, I also like about Peter, as opposed to other local architects, is that Peter doesn't need acolytes. He doesn't need a bunch of people following in his footsteps to verify or endorse his work. The work speaks for itself. And so um, I also liked his passion. He's pretty fiery and it was pretty tough office. And I, but I'd grown up with that. My, fa- I, you know, I, I can't use profanities in in a setting like this. But I certainly learnt to swear by having an office attached to the house. I can tell you. So, um, Peter was pretty fired up, but he loves architecture. So, I, you know, I, I think 
that's enough for me. He, he absolutely still to this day in his practice loves architecture and his knowledge of architecture is f absolutely fantastic. I highly recommend that any young architects who have the opportunity to spend some time with him do so because they'll probably learn more in half an hour than they'd learn in a whole semester at university. Okay. Is that a hand? No, it's a camera at the back. Um, were there any other questions? Actually, I've got a... I've had a question Natalie. I've been wanting to ask Sean all along. Um, you know, we've been touching on the whole idea of wind and weather in relation to this building, and I wondered what your thoughts are on air and the way that there is this whole idea of breeze, flow, ventilation in this building with the sides that cantilever open, the perforations, and whether in some ways we could think of this building as it being oxygenated and whether that was something that you had thought about. certainly feels oxygenated <laughs> now. <laughs> it's about yeah. five degrees. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, well, build, good buildings breathe. That's a that's a sort of that's design one hundred and one thing. You 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 got to you got to get air into your buildings. And in such a temperate climate like ours, you know, um, most of the time it's okay to have air moving through the building. Although I, uh, Peter McIntyre mentioned this the other day, and he and he's right that you know Boyd made the observation that we need heating more than we need cooling in in Melbourne, and we probably do. Um, we have a few really hot, stinking hot days, but most of the time it's cool for, for the majority of the year and so it's probably more of a concern to um, capture and moderate solar radiation than it is to to cool the building down. But shade's what we seek on a hot day, even on the weekend when it was sunny, people were seeking shade and so it's springtime and we want to get out of the sun. So shade's important and, and with shade comes the capacity to moderate and, and that's, you know, where I guess air comes in. If you can cool air down, it's the Coolgardie safe principle of cooling a building, wet a surface, have air move across it, you can cool a, cool a building. So, And Glenn's done that really cleverly in some of his buildings, I've got to say, and you know, he sits the building up off the ground. I tend not to do that. He would sit sit the building up and let the air move through and... And, and let the building cool itself naturally. So, yeah, important stuff. It's, it's interesting that a building that feels and appears as, as, uh, as simple and, and elegant as this has uh, an amount of technology in it, as you were describing, uh, in terms of it closing down if it's too, if it's too windy. Um, I'm actually curious about uh, what you think about the role of technology and how it might influence um, the next generation of designers as you know technological changes are now so rapid. Well, I mean, to be a good architect, you have to keep abreast of technology. Like to be a good surgeon, you have to be keep abreast of, of advances in whatever specialty it is that you operate on. So uh, you also have to know fundamental principles and particularly in building construction first principles if you don't have first principles knowledge it's there's no point knowing what the latest is because you can't apply it to whatever it, whatever problem it is you're solving so it's not really an answer to your question but it's an observation of the way we're educating our architects now is that first principles knowledge is is um not entirely abandoned but it's not given the same emphasis it was given when i was educated 
um, the part of the problem is access to information and information isn't intelligence and information isn't knowledge, it's information. If you have information about the latest and you can't apply it sensibly, then you have a disaster on your hands. Mm. So building technology provides the foundation for um, what architects call architectonics, the language of architecture. If you don't know your stuff, you can't produce architectonics in a meaningful way. So um, I say to young architects, get onto a building site, learn how to build, learn everything you can about building technology and building science first and also learn your history and you'll probably be able to design a building one day. Don't be seduced into the sort of bright lights of, of um, design as it exists in the digital world now because you, you, you'll, uh, um, you, you'll abandon all of that fundamental knowledge along the way and you won't have it when, you, when the time comes when you need it. Uh, so I think we've got time for one more question. If uh, up at the back... We can't hear you. I'm sorry. Do you want to just come down quickly to the to the microphone? Thank you. Go to that microphone there. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. Uh, just a quick question. Um, is the, is the the real core motive of of um, this building? Was it was it really to uh, offer a message to to the public was it was was that the core motive of of it at its um at its seed was was um was it was it an idea that was to become something that could transcend into and become a model and be, become a model into other parts of architecture uh hmm. not really i don't think i was thinking that way uh, I don't think I, I I genuinely don't think practicing architects th think that way when we're in in making the building mode. We think that way when we're not in making the building mode, and our theory infuses not just one building but a number, and then we leave it for other people to conclude what it is that we've proposed. So uh, even though I write a lot and I lecture a lot and I, I, I read a lot and study a lot still, as Hales will attest in the office, I do that to keep my, my hand in and my eye sharp. And, you know, um, but I don't, I, I don't believe in, in architectural pronouncements. I don't think architecture is made that way. I don't think you suddenly snap your fingers and produce the next theory of architecture in built form I think that's that's naive to believe that so I'd never I'd never anticipate that in a building I think there's a continuum of thinking it's it's evolving and advancing as, as each project's done so someone stupidly said that my work was predictable I actually think that's a compliment because it means that I'm I'm moving from one project to the next and and investigating an idea or a material or, or a theme um, so that at, at, the, at the end when I, when I aren't, aren't making building when I'm not making buildings anymore and I'm dead and buried, at least there's a continuum of thinking 
and I actually think that that that's the way architects really work and the one of the mythologies of architecture is that architects sort of float above the ground and land somewhere and say, and here it is, an act of sheer genius. It's just not that way. Architect, making architecture is a really tough grind. You work really hard. It's never easy. There are always um, a million extraneous forces on the theory anyway. It's great. What if you have a great theory about architecture and you can't get it over over? the planning hurdle or the engineer says he, he can't make it stand up or or the client says she won't pay for it or whatever the reason, you know, the theory's very fragile suddenly. So mm, I, I don't think I'd ever think that way. I'd make an, an analogy to, uh, to a choreographer where one talks about a vocabulary in dance um, for, for choreographers and what happens throughout their career is they add words to their yeah. language. Some of the best stuff happens by accident on site when you've made a mistake and then you fix the mistake with something that was even better than what you'd possibly hoped for. The other thing that architects suffer from is you can't see the work the way visitors to a building see the work. You can see the problems and you can see what hasn't worked and you can see, you know, I come here and I see all the plane tree stuff on the roof. It's just the way architects are built. We, we, we spend our lives doing that, so it's inevitable. We, I've never walked into a building of mine and thought, God, I'm a genius. <laughs> I always walk in and think, oh, my God, can you believe that the client bought that piece of furniture? <laughs> or something like that. Um, I think we might uh, conclude on that note by actually concentrating on the positive and uh, thanking Sean Godsell for uh, creating this beautiful building for us to enjoy. And thank you everyone for joining us tonight and we hope you can return next Tuesday to the, um, an M talk with Rob Adams from the City of Melbourne. So thank you, bye. Thank you.